doing something special. There's a special thing, a gathering with one another in which you worship and glorify Jesus together, in which you meet with one another, in which there's a deep, rich community and care for each other. But it's not just because you like each other. <laughs> it isn't. That would be all right, but that's not really the point. It's not just because we like each other that we gather on Sunday mornings. It's because we come to meet and encounter him, like Deborah was saying. And that's special because there's something, there's a dynamic at work in that. It's a gathered saints in which you gather with one another to meet and encounter Jesus. And then you do mental acts like stuff where you go out and chat in pubs. And, man, that is special. You, just, I, you know, sometimes when jealousy sounds like a word that's a bad word, sometimes you get like good jealous. That is like good jealous stuff. I listen to those things, I'm like, I want more of that in my life. I want to know more of that. I want to, I want to be talking more in pubs and random and start chatting to me and pray for them that their hips will be healed and getting prophetic words for their dads from other countries to know that they would be healed too. And then I just, that's, surely that's what the point of why we're here, isn't it? We're not just here for, you know, buildings and lights and cafes and all those things that are really good, but we're here because we want people to meet Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we gather with one another. That's why we meet and encounter him. So you have, you just got a special thing that's going on, and I love it. I love hearing bits of it. Like John said, me and Jez are kind of best mates, so we chat all the time. We argue all the time and fight with each other, but that's what best mates do, don't they? So um, he's always telling me about bits and bobs that are going on, and I just love to hear it. Um, so yeah, so this morning, I just wanted to, it's, it's a bit of an idea that's been buzzing around my head for a while, so I'm just going to trial it on you. It's fine, you'll enjoy it. Um, but I just, Jez kind of said to me, just go free reign, just chat on what you want to talk about. And I just want to talk about the fact that, you know, the, the, Christian, the Christian gospel is a movement. The Christian gospel is something that is dynamic and active. And so when Ross and Deborah were talking about today, it just made me even more excited because I think, okay, God wants to remind us that we're those that are called to be rivers, not reservoirs. It's kind of a big bit. I know Jez has said it to you before because we buzz this idea with each other. See, the Christian gospel is not one of building a reservoir in which we shut the doors, dam it up, and say, happy days, we've got what we need here, everything's all good. The Christian gospel is always one of rivers in which it begins at a source and ends at a mouth. Always the intention. The intention is always one in which I meet and encounter something of God, of the gospel. Something happens in me and in us as a source, and it comes out the mouth to be a blessing to the rest. You know, did you know that the Amazon River, as it, flow, as it flows out into the Atlantic, actually it causes the water to turn from salt into fresh water for almost four miles out as it goes. Why? Because there's power of the river that what comes out of it changes and transforms the environment in which it goes into. You are those that are called to be ambassadors of Christ. Those that meet him, I've meet, met and transformed by him. Something that God does in that work in you, then goes out to go and change others as you proclaim who Jesus is and all that he has done. It's kind of incredible. Bit. I look at, look at like the own journey of myself. I'm, I'm a kid, man. I don't know anything. I've got no, no theological training. I've got no understanding. I've got, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know everything. I genuinely don't. But I do know Jesus. And I do have this thing, this word of God that I'm able to preach and proclaim and look into and say, I don't know, but this book does. So have a look in this. And I also do know that I've got the spirit of God that's at work in me, changing and transforming me. And the same spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the grave is now at work in me. And I can share that and give that to others. Now, of these guys of themselves, let's be honest, we haven't got much of ourselves, have we? We haven't. We meet people in pubs. It's just us they're meeting. But when we turn up with a dynamic of them meeting and encountering Jesus... And his spirit, it changes and transforms people. 
And that's what we're trying to do. That's what this is about. So let me just give you a couple of stats. I don't know, Luke, if you've got these here. But this is just what the, this is what the, the uh, I haven't got my glasses on, so I'm going to have to stand really close to it. Um, but this here is what Christianity looks like all around the world. In the last hundred years, that's what's been going on with the Christian faith. And what you can start to see is actually, about a hundred years ago, let me give you these stats there right, there was about 600 million people that would have called themselves followers or believers in Jesus a hundred years ago in 1910. In 2010, that number is about 2 billion people that would call themselves followers of Jesus. You're thinking, there's something here that's going on in terms of change and shifting. People still getting to know there's still a movement of the gospel that goes and transforms lives. The reality is, actually, if you were to look at pure stats, the reality is it's still about 35% of the world would identify themselves. It was about 35% in 100 years ago. It's about 35% of the, the population, the global population, would still identify themselves as followers of Jesus today. But what I see that's really interesting here is the shift from the fact that, you know, this Christianity that we proclaim is really not just a white Western religion. So what gets talked about a lot of the time, doesn't it? Oh, it's a white Western thing. You know, it's just, we're just white Western followers of Jesus. But actually, what you recognize is, look at the global shift into the sub-Saharan Africa, the Asian Pacific. All of a sudden, the gospel goes where it wants. Do you believe that? God does what he wants, ultimately. I want to rescue and reach the people. Do you know what? The river flows where it wants to. What's been happening at the Cookmere at the moment? The river flows where it wants. Because the Spirit does what it wants. Decides, I want to rescue a people. I've decided I want to start rescuing and reaching it into, into Asia. I want to start rescuing and reaching it into sub-Saharan Africa. I go where I want, thanks. I'm the living God. I do as I please. I'm not going to be boxed and contained by your expectations and your vision and your church planting strategy. I'm going to do what I want. Because I'm God. I'm the one who flung the stars into space. I'm the one that set the world into motion. I'm the one that wakes you up daily on a daily basis. I'll do what I please, thank you very much. And I choose, I want to rescue and redeem people. I'm going to go. I'm going to raise up spirit-filled believers that are going to proclaim my word and they're going to change and transform lives. Why have we got a church in Seaford? I promise you, it's not just because a few years back, you know, me and Jesuit on the eldership team, we think, oh yeah, I'll tell you what, we'll plant a church in Seaford. Spirit does what it wants. I want to raise up a body of believers in Seaford, in this town. I want to use it to change and transform the people that live here. Therefore, I'm going to raise up people. I'm going to build and establish churches. That's what God does. That's what he constantly does. So if you've got the next one, just to click across for me, this is what, if you were to look around the world now, this is where believers are scattered all over the world. The bigger the circle, the more believers that are there. This is what it looks like. I'll tell you what, a handful of frightened believers, a couple of thousand years ago, haven't done too bad, have they? They haven't. They've taken a little gospel that they heard from Jesus. Let's get up here. About there, where are we? About there. And it has spread across the whole of the globe because God does as he wants. He moves and he changes and he preaches and he proclaims. And do you know what? We are a sent people. That's what we heard this morning. We're a sent people, sent by God. We're not called to be those who just sit and receive, thank you for the good news for ourselves, but we're a sent people that are called to go. It's exactly how Jesus intends it. So look at this. This is Matthew 28, verse 16, through to 20. And this is Jesus' kind of final words to his, to his disciples. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. That's good news for you. You know, 
They worshipped, but some doubted. Weren't even like they were all completely convinced in what was going on here. These are frightened, worried followers of Jesus. Some of them still full of doubt, not even sure whether they're fully convinced that it's true or not. They don't know whether they're going to be able to do it. They don't know whether they've got the ability. But Jesus came to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. See all those nations we just saw a minute ago? Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then this is the really good bit. Because surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is Jesus with us? It's not a trick question. <laughs> is Jesus with us? Yes. Because yes. he says he is. Because I say it. It's because he says he is. Surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is with us as we go. He loves it. He was in the pub. He's chatting to people. He knows Martin in Cyprus. <laughs> he knows people's hips. Jesus is the name that is above every name. And what a great song to sing off the back of that. It's his name that is powerful. If I'd gone in and started using the name of Ross, I don't know how much influence or effect that would have had into their life. But I use the name of Jesus because he's with me to the very end of the age and I see signs and wonders I'd be expected to because he does what he wants, because he's God. So then this is, that's what they're doing, right? You've got these followers of Jesus. They're, they're called to this. They're called to a Christian life that looks like that. They're called to a sent life, not to be reservoirs, but to be rivers that go and take and transform and speak truth and let out of the source of living water that is in them now flow out of their mouth. So they would tell others of who they believe in. They start to see signs and wonders. And then we're going to skip a little bit into Acts. So you know, the, the point is you kind of got the Gospels that go through and then you've got Acts that comes in. And really Acts is just talking about once Jesus returns... What does it look like now for followers of Jesus to start changing and transforming the world, transforming the world that they're in? And I'm just going to tell you a little story from Thessalonica. So Thessalonica is a place that all of a sudden Paul and some of the disciples end up in, and they start to preach and proclaim the gospel. I just want to read you this story, because it sounds pretty similar to some of the stuff that we're just hearing about in the week, and it's, that's what you'd expect as followers of Jesus. It says this, When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue there. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he gets the word of God out and he starts to talk to them about the word of God. He explains and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Then Jesus, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Jukes and not uh, Greeks, Jukes, Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob. They started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, not your Jason, Jason that was there. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials. And they shouted, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Sound familiar? That's what we're still doing today. We're still saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crown and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. 
On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Brians, who were of noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scripture. Every day to see if what Paul and Silas said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of good of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, and they left with instructions for Paul and Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. See, so this is an active verse. This is all about something that happens in a group of people that all of a sudden they hear the good news. The Great Commission wasn't given to Paul. Paul weren't in that crowd that heard it when Jesus returns. But Paul somehow, because of the influence that he has with other followers of Jesus, starts to go, oh, I get it. The gospel, the good news, the proclamation of who Jesus is and telling people it's king is an active thing. I'm meant to go, am I? I'm meant to travel and tell people, okay, I've got it. He's had some encounter of Jesus and some power of the Holy Spirit that's now in work in him that he just decides to realize, I'm going to start heading out wherever I go and we're going to start proclaiming who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And what happens? So you've got these, all these little active words that are going on here. He passes through a place. He goes in. He explains and proves. Though whom I proclaim to you um, is the Christ. He, they, people start to join him. All of these words are active words because you know the Christian faith is an active thing. It isn't something which I just receive from God and then say, good, I've got it, I'll hold on to it now. There is a thing of enduring and persevering and knowing of God. There's something of activity that the Spirit longs to do in us. And so the bit that I love most about this is when he turns up there, do the people of Thessalonica really like it? Do the officials of the city like it when he arrives? No. They want to get rid of him. They want to drive him out. In some translations, you read it and it says, who are these men that have caused trouble all over the world? Or who are these people that have turned the world upside down, have come to this place also? Do you know what? People in Seaford are saying that about you. <laughs> they are. People in Seaford are saying of you, who are these people? <laughs> Why are they telling me there's another king? Why are they walking into this election differently from the rest of us? Why are they not worried about the same things that we're worried about? Why have they come here also? We didn't ask them to come here. No one invited you to come into this place. Why have you arrived? Why are you turning the world upside down? We like it the way it is. I don't want to acknowledge Jesus as king of my life. People are saying this about you. They may not be banging on your doors and chucking Jason in prison. They may not be doing those things. But I promise you they're saying it. And I hope they are. Because if they're not, you're not proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You're not. If they're not saying it, I don't think you understand what this gospel's about. I don't think you really understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus if they're not saying of you, what are you doing? Why are you living like that? Why are you giving your money to that thing? What's wrong with you people? You're crazy. Why are you turning up to prayer meetings in the evening? Why are you going to church twice in one day? Why are you going in the morning and then coming back in the evening to pray? What's wrong with you people? Why do you keep telling me about Jesus? I don't want to know about this Jesus. That's the point. The point is that something so transformational has occurred in you that you cannot keep silent. You can't stay as the person that you once were. You can't just say, great, reservoir life for me. I'll just hold on to this for myself. No, you open the floodgates. You open the doorways. You do all that you can in order that some would know who Jesus is. That's the gospel. That's what it looks like. Do all that you can to proclaim who Jesus is and all that he has done. 
Do you know, it's an incredible bit as well. So I'm saying this is so much just about boldness and activity, and some of you might say, all right, yeah, thanks, you can keep banging on to me about I've got to talk about Jesus, I know. I don't want you to feel bad. It's not a condemnation thing. It's something that should just be an excitement in us. You know, if, if, if I know something, if I... I support Crystal Palace. There you go, chuck off example. I talk about Crystal Palace more disproportionately than I should because I care about it. And I talk about Jesus because I care about him and as a result, disproportionately talk about him and speak about him in the life that I do. Just chat randomly in the pub in the evening and people are like, what are you chatting about? Because we're not just talking about the Netflix show that we've watched. We're not just talking about the TV series that's on. We're not just talking about everything else that's going on in the world. We talk about him because we love him. Not of condemnation, not because I should, because I love it. I love talking about him. But this is the incredible bit as well. So this is a, have you got like the little graph of what happened to the early church and how it grew? Now I keep shifting on that one. This one. So this guy Rodney Stark, this is a non-Christian historian. And basically he, would, he, would try, he was trying to attribute church growth. And why did a little scattered group of people change and transform the whole of the world and get reputations of being those that turn the world upside down? Actually they did it because they preached and proclaimed the gospel. They did it because the Spirit of God was at work in them, but also the way that they went about behaving and living out, not just in words, but in deeds, the Christian gospel and building churches and communities that look like it, if affected people in such a way that people were, were drawn into this community. So he would attribute church growth. He kind of knew, again, he isn't really putting Pentecost in here, so don't start thinking about where does Pentecost fit in an explosion of numbers on one day. He doesn't care about Pentecost. He just thinks about how did a few believers become 33 million believers by 350 AD? How did that happen? How did all of a sudden the Christian gospel flourish from a, few, from a thousand to 33 million? And this is the percentage of the world's population at the time, or the Roman Empire's population. How did 0.0017% of the Roman Empire in 300 years become 56% of the Roman Empire that would call themselves followers of Jesus or those that believe in him? Well, actually happened because they went with boldness. It went because they proclaimed something. It went because the Spirit of God was at work in them and God does as he pleases. But also, these are the sort of things that they did. They cared for the sick with food and water. Why? Because what the Christian gospel does in you. It doesn't just change what you say, it changes what you do. It changes the way that you behave and the way that you act. So when you turn up and others think, well, I'll have enough food and water for my family, you start seeing the sick amongst the community and you feed them and you water them, and as a result, two-thirds less people die just because they're given food and water. That was the truth in the Roman Empire at that time. So because Christians acted and behaved differently from the empire, all of a sudden people are going, do you know what, these Christians, they look after us and they feed us. And as a result, two of us survive rather than all of us dying. <laughs> what else did they do? As a result, these lower mortality rates for both the carer and the survivor developed immunity in them. It's almost as if the wisdom of the way that God says to live our lives has like actual physical implications in our life as well. It's weird, isn't it? It's almost as if like the God who created the heavens and the earth set the world up in a way that actually if you follow his laws and his commandments, you also enjoy blessings in a physical realm as well as a spiritual realm in the things that you do. That's weird, isn't it? Seems like there's like this, this gospel doesn't just make sense intellectually, it also makes sense physically in the things that I do as well. That's, that's okay, I don't know. Tickles my interest a bit. But then this vast difference in survival rates would often and rightly be attributed to miraculous. They'd say, 
is a miracle. Two-thirds of these people now survive and they all used to die. Of course there's some miraculous in it. The Spirit of God does as he pleases. But some of it is just basic ways of living and the way that we should treat one another. The way that we should care for one another and not just go, well, I'm looking after myself, thank you very much, and you can just get on with as you please. That's why people, Christians, set up things like the NHS in this country. Because they don't just believe it intellectually, they also live it out and think this is the, this is the way that we're going to structure and build our Christian communities and society. And then especially this became attractive towards women. Because women had faithful husbands who were going to stick by them and going to love them. They had the removal of Im- infanticide, I can't say that word properly. That just meant that often people valued male babies over female babies. So in Roman culture, if you had a girl baby, just leave it out to die. And the Christian gospel started to proclaim that the sanctity of life for all. They were all made in the image of God. So Christian families give birth to a girl, and instead of leaving it outside, they say, we're going to care and raise this girl as well. So all of a sudden, it values women. And, all of a su- and this other thing as well, widows are then honoured. One of the massive things that the early church does is set aside deacons to start to feed the widows amongst them. You know, we're still called to be like that, that today. We're called to be those who proclaim and preach the good news of who Jesus is, but also live vastly different lives from the way that the world would go about living it with itself. Because that's the way that we proclaim the gospel. That's the way that we show not just as something in our words, but also in our deeds and the things that we do. You see, all of this is about this idea that we are called to be those that are rivers, not just reservoirs. Reservoirs hold on, look after themselves, dam things up, shut the doors, make sure that we've got enough. And do you know the reason why I think people really build reservoirs? Because they're worried that they don't know when the next rain's coming. That's really the reason you build a reservoir. You know, if you know it's going to rain every day, you don't build a reservoir, do you? Because every day, you know the rain's coming. Put the, put the bucket outside, build it up, thank you very much. And then tomorrow, oh, is the rain coming again tomorrow? Yeah, it's going to rain again tomorrow, so we'll probably have enough for today, because the rain's coming again tomorrow. But the second that you start worrying about tomorrow, and whether you're going to be provided for tomorrow, you hold on. Because you start thinking, well, if I don't know it's coming, I better make sure that we've got enough. Because this, this thing might run out. This thing might not be enough. It might be just enough for us, but I don't really know it's going to be all right for everyone else. And then it changed my mentality as well, because then I start worrying, I don't want too many people to know about this thing, because there might not be enough for me. What happens? What happens if too many people start arriving, too many people start turning up and wanting to be fed and looked after and cared for? I don't know, am I going to be looked after and cared for? Do I believe that the Spirit of God has got enough for all who believe? I do. Do I believe that his mercies are new every morning? Do I believe that I can come and meet and encounter the living God daily? Do I believe that his, his spirit reigns upon us continuously? That I can walk into the never-ending waterfall of God's grace and mercy and receive it every day. He has all that I need forever. So therefore, I don't need to reservoir and dam up the spirit of God that's at work in me. All of a sudden, I can open up and say, Do you know what? I don't have to worry about have I got enough for tomorrow because I know that he's the one that provides. I know the one. I know that he's got for me to, tomorrow. Tomorrow's fine. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to worry about damming this thing up and holding on to it. And I actually need to let go in order that others would experience and encounter the abundant grace and mercy of God. That's the call for us as, G, as followers of Jesus. You see, there's just a little phrase. There's a phrase that will be up there that says, sometimes we have a too exclusive view of our election. Have you got that little phrase? It just says, sometimes we have a too exclusive view of our election. And this is what happens to uh, followers of Jesus and the people of Israel had it all of the time. 
they always used to think, I don't know if you got that, it's, just, it's towards the end of it, but it's just this one little line that just says, sometimes we understand that we've been elected, we understand that God's chosen us, but sometimes that view is too exclusive. Now, when, when you join a club, you become a bit exclusive about your club, don't you? It's my club, I go along to it, I'm part of this thing. And that's what God's people always used to do. The people of Israel had too exclusive a view of their election. They believed they were chosen by God. They believed that God loved them and poured out his goodness and kindness towards them. But everything was about an exclusive thing that was just for those. And God continuously had to keep shaking them out of that exclusivity. That's what the Old Testament is so much full of. Just continuously saying, remember those who are not yet here. Remember those who don't yet know it yet. Jonah, come on, stop thinking about yourself. Go and, tell the, go and tell those in Nineveh about who Christ is. Continuously shaking them up, changing them. And then one day, the only one that's left is Jesus. He's the only one that's left recognizing that actually the calling they have on their life is not exclusive just to him. See, he recognizes that actually I long to tear the curtain in two. I long to open up the Spirit of God so that all who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Jesus does that, and it's still true of us today. It becomes so easy to still become exclusive in the things that we do. Do you know the reason that you're here in Seaford? You're here for those who are not yet here. You're not just here for yourselves. If you were, shut the doors, man. Jesus, come back now. Come on, might as well. Call, call us home. We're here for those who are not yet here. We're here because we long for people to know the election and the call of Christ into their life too. This talk, I wanted to call it Eating Bigger Pizzas. Really, it was just an excuse for me to go and get a big pizza for myself last night. That's the only reason, really. But part of it is, and I've still got two slices in there, look, because... So I buy myself an extra-large pizza last night from Pizza Go Go. It's too big for me. I can't handle it. I'm only a little... I'm, I'm little, I'm small. I, you know, I'm bigger in some areas than I was when I got married, but, you know, that's... You know, stomach putting on a bit of weight there, but ultimately, I can't eat a whole extra-large pizza. I can't do it. It's too big for me. So when I order one of these, I've still got two slices left that anyone that would like them is very... I know John said already that he hasn't had breakfast. Um, but the reason I order a large pizza is because, actually, sometimes... So I'm laying in bed last night, and after I've gone to bed, if, if you've ever had a large, salty pizza like that, I had to make myself a pint of water to sit by the side of the bed. You know, because all of a sudden you've had all this salty water, all this salty food, you have a pint of water that's there. I woke up a couple of times in the middle of the night because ultimately I can't eat that amount of pizza. Can't do it. I was unable to handle it in and of myself. And you know, the Christian gospel is much bigger than you think it is. The call of God is much bigger than you imagine. Why? Because you're not meant to be able to handle it. You're really not. The Christian gospel is not one that you're just meant to go, perfect, work this out now. Church, yeah, we've worked it out. Absolutely fine. We're all good. Because then you don't need him. You don't need him at all. Just get on with it. You've done it. You've worked it out. You know how to preach. You know how to pray for people. He sets it up so that actually the call of God upon your life is much bigger than you can handle. And actually, as a result, you need him. You need the pint of water. You need a thirst for him. And I think that so often happens in our lives. I think that sometimes we forget that we need to be thirsty for God. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all those who fancy a drink. He says to me, come to me, all those who are thirsty, and I will give them streams of living water. Jesus loves it when we have a deeper thirst for him. That's what I think he wants to stir in us a little bit. 
is a greater view of what he longs to do. He longs to reach more people than you think he does. He longs to go to more places than you could imagine. He longs to change more lives than you could think of. He longs to do more with your little portion, your little encounter, your little moment of God than you would put an expectation upon him. And as a result, when you realize that it's too big, too much, unable to do, there's too many people in this town for us to be, be able to reach, there's too much need for us to be able to deal with, instead of us worrying about it and being fearful of it, it comes to us going, I need more, I need more water. I've got a deeper thirst now because I need you. I need you to be able to deal with this. I need you to help me to be able to process this. And so actually what we continuously do is we come before God saying, I need you. Those disciples, when they arrived, not that disciple, that would be a funny one. <laughs> but those disciples, when they arrived, they didn't really know what the Christian gospel was going to look like. They didn't know what they were getting into. They just said, come and follow me. Okay, I'll leave my nets by the sea and I'll come and follow you, Jesus. They didn't really know what the Christian life was like. You probably didn't really realize what the Christian life was going to be like. You just had an encounter with Jesus and you thought, I love this, I love him, I'm going to give my life to him. But he calls you to something so much more than you could ever imagine. He calls you to things so much beyond yourself than you would ever be able to do in and of your own powers and abilities. But that's the way he sets it up because he longs for you to be needing him. He longs for you to be able to need him to satisfy you, to satisfy a thirst in you. That's why it's great. I know every week you break bread together and we're just going to land into that. Because as we break bread, we're actually acknowledging, I need you. If we turned up without this part, we'd be saying, great, you know. He's all right. He can sing a few songs. You know, Deborah did pretty good. She hosted the meeting. The guys there did well setting up things. We did it all. But we come to this, to the table, because we say, we need you, Jesus. We need to constantly be reminded that it's you that makes this thing happen. It's you that provides. And as we approach the table, actually, it's just saying, God, would you make me thirstier for you again? Would you remind me once again of the call that you've placed upon my life? And would you remind me that you long to satisfy a thirst in my soul? As you approach the table, you might just do that. You might just take a moment. The band will probably come up and play something. But you might just say, God, would you just make me thirstier for you again? Now, I can still feel it this morning after that big pizza last night. I still feel like I could still do with another pint of water. So just think about the call that God has placed upon you, not just as an individual, but as a church. Say, God, would you satisfy our thirst? You come and provide for us and all we need. You might want to pray for each other. You might want to, as you do that, break bread. You might just want to take a moment on your own. But let's use that as we come into land our meeting.